Our scripture reading is from Jeremiah 20, verses 1 through 9. Now Pasher, the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pasher, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give you all Judah into the hand of King Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, you and all your friends, to whom you have prophesied falsely. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary and holding it in, and I cannot. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Colin. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community, and it's good to see each of you this morning, especially if this is uh, your first time here at Christ Community, or maybe you've just started uh, coming back to church or checking out church for the first time. Um, We're so glad that you're here, and uh, I know that doing that, walking into an unfamiliar place, uh, is not an easy thing to do. So thanks for doing that this morning, for being with us. We're really grateful, and hopefully you're Uh, having a good time with us so far this morning. And we want to begin now as we turn to the message uh, that God has for us in Jeremiah chapter 20 by asking for God to help us to understand his word um, in prayer. And so um, we know that we depend on God for everything, so we just want to pause here in this moment and acknowledge our dependence on him uh, as we seek to understand and obey his word. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you give us the gift of your word. It is a treasure. I pray that we would treasure it this morning and that your spirit would do the work that only ultimately he can do, which is making our hearts receptive to uh, what you would have to say through us, because you are speaking to us this morning, and what you would have to say through us in this passage of scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of our passions uh, as a family is uh, visiting national parks. And earlier this year, in June of 2017, a man named uh, Alex Honnold did something insane in a national park. Uh, He completed the first free solo climb of El Capitan without any protective equipment or ropes at all. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, El Capitan is a roughly 3,000-foot granite cliff in Yosemite National Park. It's one of the tallest granite rock faces in the world. 
And in fact, many climbers, depending on the route that they take up El Cap, uh, will take multiple days. They'll actually sleep on portable ledges with lots of gear and equipment and, and food climbing this sheer rock face. However, Alex, without a single rope or piece of climbing equipment except for chalk for his hands, climbed it in three hours and 56 minutes. Take a look. That's incredible, right? And, and as someone who has a fear of heights that makes me disinclined to even want to climb a, a second story uh, ladder to the, the gutters, um, my hands are, are, are literally pouring with sweat just watching a video like that. And when it, when it comes to heights, I'm incredibly risk averse. Uh, this spring when we were visiting Zion National Park in Utah, I actually did attempt a, a hike all the way to Observation Point, which is a yeah, beautiful spot. But you know, at one point toward the end of the trail, you get to a place where you're walking along sheer drops of 800 plus feet and the trail gets really narrow and I just stopped. I was like, I've got a wife and kids. I'm, I'm turning around, I'm going, I'm going back. Uh, so when it comes to, to heights, I'm incredibly risk averse, uh, but not just with heights, right? I mean, generally, and I, I don't think I'm alone in this, uh, when it comes to just about anything, I'm, I'm risk averse, right? Uh, finances, reputation, relationships. Uh, my default is to want to play it safe, uh, to not get in a situation that would cost me too much. And I think this is even true with, and maybe even perhaps especially with, my faith in Jesus. And I know that I'm not alone in that, and how do I know that? Well, because a number of months ago, we did a, a survey, a study as a church called Reveal. And one of the key, you may, you may remember, many of you folded out. And one of the key questions in the Reveal survey was this, would you risk everything for Jesus? Would you risk everything for Jesus? And as a church, uh, we responded below average on that question when compared to other churches in the U.S. who have participated in the survey. Now, my initial reaction to that as, as a pastor and a leader is that, well, we're just more honest than all those other congregations. Um, but as we dug into the results with experts who designed the study and helped us look through the data, what we found was that the below average response to the question, would you risk everything for Jesus, is actually particularly common for churches with demographics like ours. You see, as a church, we tend to have a lot of people who are well-educated, employed in good jobs, and live in nice neighborhoods. Now, it's certainly not true of all of us, but it is true of many, many of us who call Christ community their church home. That's not a bad thing, but it comes with a particular danger. And that is that at least from a material perspective, from the world's perspective, we have, many of us, it, perceived a lot to lose. We have a lot to lose, and so we tend to be risk-averse, uh, even when, and perhaps especially when it comes to our faith in Jesus. But here's the thing. Life with God is risky. Life with God is not safe. Life with God is not safe. That's what Jeremiah discovered firsthand as he sought to follow life, God, into a life that was too big for him. A life that was only possible if God was sustaining him at every turn. Life with God is not safe. 
Well, let's take a look at how this plays out in Jeremiah's story. If you would turn to Jeremiah chapter 20, you grab one of the pew Bibles or even pull it up on, on your phone. I'd love for you to follow along. It's on page 647 in the pew Bibles if you want to follow along there. And Jeremiah, whose book we've been studying uh, these past few weeks, began his career as a priest. So he was someone who was entrusted with the work of leading God's people into worship as they gathered, uh, leading God's people into relationship with him. But back in chapter one of the book, God comes to him and gives him a new occupational direction. He reveals to Jeremiah that even before Jeremiah was born, that God had set him apart to be a prophet. Now, a prophet was someone who spoke God's words to God's people, particularly in this task of calling God's wayward people back to him, back to faithfulness in God when they had strayed away. Jeremiah's was not a popular message. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a sermon that he gave at the temple gates. And after he finishes the sermon, the people want to kill him. They want to destroy him. And now one of his colleagues, a fellow priest, turns against him. Look at verses 1 through 4 here in chapter 20. Now, Pasher, the priest... So Pasher, he's a fellow priest of Jeremiah. Maybe even perhaps he was a supervisor. Now Pasher, the priest, the son of Immer, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, all these judgments that were going to come on God's people if they did not return back to him. And then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. And the next day, when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pasher, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on, and I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and strike them down with the sword. So this prophecy, this message that Jeremiah is giving is getting more and more specific. This is the first time that Babylon is mentioned by name in the book, that there's this rising power to the north of Israel that's going to come as part of God's judgment on the nation. But what we want to focus on is not so much Jeremiah's message to Pasher in this passage, but Jeremiah's experience of having to deliver that message. You see, Jeremiah, he'd done everything right. He had obeyed God. He had risked for God. He had stepped out in faith, done what it didn't seem reasonable to do. He had bold faith. And look where it got him. A fellow priest, a co-worker, perhaps even a, a supervisor turns against him, beats him, locks him up in the stocks all night long, cold, Painful, lonely, shamed, mocked. That's what Jeremiah's life of faithfulness got him. Life with God isn't safe. You know, Jeremiah feels alone and abandoned. In verse 7, he says, God, you've you've deceived me. 
And in verse 10, this is the Christian Standard Bible translation, he says, For I have heard the gossip of many people, tares on every side. Report him. Let's report him. Everyone I trusted watches for my fall. Jeremiah looks around and he says, Everyone that I trusted is just waiting for me to fail, waiting for me to fall, waiting for me to be destroyed. You can do everything that God asks of you and yet still be profoundly disappointed and even violently opposed. Life with God isn't safe. And there are far too many pseudo-versions of Christianity that paint a life with God as one of unending ease and blessing, if only we're faithful and obedient to him. But the book of Jeremiah will not permit us to hold that view. Because again and again, Jeremiah shows us that a life of faithfulness can often lead us to places of disappointment and suffering. You see, life with God is anything but comfortable. And this is a pattern that we see in God's plan of rescue right from the very beginning. Uh, as early on as the story of Abraham, who's, that's like five, six, seven, eight pages into your Bible, when God calls Abraham, this person, this family that he's going to use to rescue the, the world, he immediately calls Abraham to leave his home and his homeland and everything that is familiar and comfortable. It's the first thing that God has him do. And again, this pattern repeats itself throughout. It doesn't mean that there aren't seasons where we experience rest and comfort, uh, even sometimes in the midst of suffering. But it does demonstrate that faithfulness to God over a lifetime, it will call us into places of suffering and hardship and discomfort. And we see this played out in the life of the apostles as well, these early church leaders who carried the message of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, Paul, who wrote most of our, or a good portion of our New Testament, uh, the second half of the scriptures, was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. He was run out of town. Many of the other early church leaders were similarly abused and imprisoned and, and many even killed for their faith. And yet we find when we look at the book of Acts that they count a, a joy that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. And we continue to see this even today uh, with many of our ministry partners around the world in places where Christianity is particularly difficult, places like Iran and China, uh, northeastern Kenya, Somalia. We have ministry partners uh, in all of those places. We regularly hear stories of believers in Jesus who've lost jobs or reputations, who've lost years away from their family when they were imprisoned, or in some cases, yes, even in their lives. And perhaps while most of us will not, in our context, suffer to that degree for our faith in Jesus, we still need to ask the question, is my faith too comfortable? Is my faith too comfortable? I read an article on the Gospel Coalition website this week by Brett McCracken that titled, was titled, Eight Signs That Your Christianity is Too Comfortable. And the author begins by noting, uh, just pointing out that, that comfort seeking is our default mode in a consumeristic society. So we often find ourselves in a comfortable Christianity without even 
knowing it. And so Brett kind of gives some different ideas for maybe signs that that's beginning to happen to us. And here are just a couple of that, that hit me particularly hard as I read the article first, that there's absolutely no friction between your Christianity and your partisan politics. He writes, a faith that aligns perfectly with one political party, party is suspiciously convenient and lacks prophetic witness. Those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus and obey his word ought to find that there are things about both political parties and their platforms that make us deeply uncomfortable. Uh, second, he writes, your friends and coworkers are surprised to learn that you're a church-going Christian. If there's nothing about the way that we spend our time, what we value, how we talk, use our resources, that it's different than our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, uh, then our Christianity is probably too comfortable. Uh, another one, that no one at your church ever annoys you. If everyone at your church, or at least if the people you choose to hang out with at your church, never annoy you or rub you the wrong way, you're probably too comfortable. Because the, the church is to be a place of, of vast diversity with people from lots of different backgrounds, political persuasion, socioeconomic status, where we come together because of our common faith in the gospel, but that there are lots of, of things that we would for no other reason than that we're Christians, that we would ever spend time together. If that's not your experience in the local church, our, our Christianity is probably too comfortable. We should find regularly on Sunday mornings that we're hanging out with people that we wouldn't find ourselves hanging out with naturally in other spaces. And the last one here I'll point out is that you never feel challenged, only affirmed. And, and Brett makes this powerful observation. He says, Healthy faith doesn't just celebrate you as you are, but relentlessly molds and refines you into the likeness of Christ, which is a beautiful but necessarily uncomfortable process. Recently, Rachel, uh, my wife, and I were, were talking. Um, she's been reading this book uh, called The Year of Living Danishly. And apparently the, the Danes uh, report some of the highest happiness levels in the world. And there's lots of fascinating insights in this book to glean and learn from and apply. But, but Denmark is also a, a deeply secular country. And Rachel and I were discussing the relationship between happiness and faith. And how could this country full of people who uh, practice, don't really practice a faith of, of any kind um, be so happy without that or without the gospel? And, and it dawned on us, though, as we were having this conversation, that happiness and faith don't always go together. That this author, as she was interviewing these different people in Denmark, would always ask them the question, how happy are you on a scale of 1 to 10? And they'd always, you know, be, list a very high number there. But we're mistaken if we think that the gospel is asking that question. The question the gospel asks is not how happy are you, but how faithful are you? How fruitful are you? And at times, faithfulness and fruitfulness will be accompanied by great happiness. Other times, it will land you in the stocks to be mocked and ashamed. And in the midst of that trial and hardship and shame and frustration, Jeremiah wants to stop. He wants to give up. He wants to shut up. Because what is it that keeps getting him into so much trouble, suffering so much abuse? bringing them to so much pain and suffering. 
Speaking God's words, right? He says in verse 8, the word of the Lord has become my constant disgrace and derision. Have you ever felt that way with Jeremiah? That the scriptures or your faith or the name of Jesus are a source of disgrace and derision for you? That there were things that, that they were the very things that caused people to dislike or reject you? If you felt that way, you're, you're not alone. Jeremiah is saying, these, God's word has become a disgrace to me. A derision. Have you ever felt like life would just be easier if, if only I didn't have to uphold a, a biblical view of human sexuality or if Jesus wasn't just so exclusive in the Gospels or if the Bible just didn't seem so harsh in certain parts? I know I certainly have. Like every day. And Jeremiah actually determines that he's going to be done with speaking God's words. Look at the first part of verse 9. He says, I won't mention him or speak any longer in his name. God, I'm, I'm done with this. But then Jeremiah finds that he can't help himself. He doesn't want to, but he can't stop. Look at verse 9, the second half. But his message, God's message, the Lord's message becomes a fire burning in my heart. Shut up in my bones. I tr I'm tired of holding it in. And I cannot prevail. I can't, I can't stop. I don't want to keep doing this. I just, I can't stop speaking God's words. And it's in this verse we discover what, what Jeremiah discovered, that life with God cannot give up. In the end, Jeremiah discovers that as much as he might want to, he can't give up. This calling on his life, it's too real, it's too profound. He, he can't escape it. And such is the life of those who have experienced the reality of, of genuine conversion, genuine new birth in Christ it's not so much that, that we've received this new life, but that it has us. And it won't let go. It can't let go. And, and so we find that we can't let go. As we noted earlier in the service, uh, this week marked the 500th anniversary of the beginning of what's known as the Protestant Reformation, that on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the church door and Wittenberg, Germany. This began a, a dramatic movement to reform the church. It wasn't really Luther's intention to spark this huge movement, but it began the recovery of the good news of the gospel that had been largely obscured in the Middle Ages. And Luther risked much. And at one point, despite uh, the truth of the gospel that he had discovered afresh and the transformation that occurred in his life as he faced great danger and hardship and persecution, he wrestled with whether or not he should recant some of his writings about the gospel. He was on trial by the church for things that he had said. He wrestled in agony and the day of the trial he comes and was asked again, Luther, will you recant? Will you take it all back? 
Luther replied in his own Jeremiah 20 verse 9 sort of moment, I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither safe, neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. Here I stand, I can do no other. I remember a moment at the end of college and I was facing what was probably one of the darkest seasons of my life and having this similar moment of, of sort of questioning God, not wanting to, his plan, why is this unfolding in this particular way? And yet finding that I couldn't help but trust in God in that moment. It was this combination of deep doubt and distress and yet inability not to keep trusting. I couldn't do anything other. What are the things that cause us to give up? Well, there are lots of things. We mentioned our, our comfort, our desire to seek and preserve the status quo, but I think another thing that causes us to give up is our expectations. See, when we have false expectations about what the Christian life lived faithfully will lead us to experience, we tend to give up in moments of hardship thinking that God has not been faithful to us. When in reality, we've just had a wrong set of expectations about what this life is to be. You see, our expectations profoundly shape how we experience reality, don't they? We've probably all had that experience, right, of, of reaching down to pick up a box that we thought was really heavy full of books or something, but it wasn't, and you, you find yourself kind of like throwing it almost to the ceiling. Or maybe the reverse, something you thought, oh, this box is going to be super light and it's actually heavy. You find yourself straining in a way you weren't expecting. I mean, nothing about the weight of the box changed, but your expectations dramatically shaped how you experienced the reality of that. Have your expectations about life with Jesus been deeply shaped by the Gospels? Have they been shaped by the Psalms? Have they been shaped by Jeremiah and Job? Or have they been shaped by something else? They've been shaped by popular sentiment, by Pinterest and Facebook, by the American dream, by consumer advertising. I find myself going again and again to the Psalms in which the whole spectrum of human experience and emotion and relationship with God is on display. They give me words to pray when I'm joyful and when I'm sad, content and confused. They teach me how to pray for others who have experienced injustice and suffering that I haven't and perhaps never will experience. You know, and I, I love working with a map and compass. And GPS is great, uh, but there's something about uh, a map and, and a compass that I just, I just love working with and using to navigate. But to use a compass effectively, you have to adjust the declination of the compass to true north. Because you probably know, magnetic north and true north, they aren't the same, right? In fact, not only are magnetic north and true north not the same, but magnetic north is, is always slowly shifting over time. So you can go online and look up the, the current declination of the 
compass from magnetic north to true north in your area, and it changes over the years. And if you don't adjust your compass for the magnetic declination, you will end up lost even if you follow your compass perfectly. Our expectations and our hearts are similar to compasses in that way. He said that they're drawn to, they're influenced by cultural north. It's different than true north. And if we don't adjust the declination of the compasses of our hearts, we can follow what feels like true north the whole way and end up in a dramatically different place. However, Jeremiah and the psalmists and the gospel writers, indeed all of the scriptures serve to adjust the declination of our hearts to true north. And this leads us to the final verses of our chapter that we're looking at this morning. And Jeremiah discovers that he, that he can't find comfort in this life without God, but he also discovers that he can't live this life without God. And so he clings to something beyond just this life, just this moment. We see this in verses 11 through 13. He says, But the Lord is with me as a dreaded warrior. Therefore my persecutors will stumble. They will, they will not overcome me. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, this means kind of Lord who's the commander of a military forces, Lord of armies, Lord of hosts who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind. Let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. Uh, Jeremiah basically says that I know that this life is going to be difficult, that there's going to be lots of moments of injustice in the midst of this, but I trust God will be with me and that he will set all things right in the end. I love this affirmation that I've committed my cause to you. Jeremiah does not take vengeance into his own hands. He says, God, you will judge. I've committed my cause to you. He will bring about justice for all. He will punish those who have done wrong. He will vindicate those who have been faithful to him. That's Jeremiah's hope. It's what allows him to rejoice in this moment. It's what allows him to have hope. This promise that God will deliver the life of the needy from the hands of the evildoer. And this is our last observation this morning, that life with God clings to hope. You see, life without God is in our life with God. It's not safe. It's full of risk. It's not safe, but it is good. And that's our hope. Our hope is that life with God is not that it's going to be this safe, easy, comfortable thing. It's not going to be. Life with God is one that never has promised safety, at least in this life. But life with God is one that has promised to be good in the end. Because you see, in the end, risk, this danger, this life that isn't safe, is only worth it if there's a reward, right? Alex, this climber that we, we began with, he's crazy, right? He takes this incredible risk. One wrong move, one piece of rock that crumbles in his hand, it would have been all over for him. 
crazy amount of risk. But for what? But our faith in Jesus is not like Alex's climb of El Capitan. Yes, it's true it isn't safe, but in the end it is good. And a good end is guaranteed to us. And in that sense there is no risk ultimately, for God is always faithful to his promises. God's promises will come true. Yes, obedience to them will cost us and cause us to perhaps lose things we have worked incredibly hard for. But in the end, the greatest risk is not costly obedience, but comfortable, easy disobedience. Of course, life with the God of the universe isn't safe, but it is good. And we know that it is good because God himself has walked into the very heart of the furnace of suffering with us so that we can know that in the end we will be delivered. Is that the hope? Is that the hope that you're clinging to this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you take us a risk-averse, comfort-seeking people. Make us into the kind of people who would risk everything for Jesus. For the simple reason that he's given everything to us. He's given up his very life for us. And in doing so, would we not find safety, but what we would find goodness, contentment, and joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.